Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 89 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a new episode released every single day. You get an extended interview like this one every Monday and short four or five minute daily episodes Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Loads of content for classic rock fans. Now, today's interview is without a doubt one of my favorite of the entire series so far. You've probably already noticed that it's a longer episode than normal from us, and that's because of a couple of reasons. One, the guest is an amazing storyteller, and boy does he have a million stories to tell. I think I only asked about ten questions too. And and number two, because he was such a great guest, I didn't want to cut anything out, so I've left it all in here for you to enjoy, and I know that you certainly will. My guest today is former mountain drummer Corky Lang. Now, Just saying former mountain drummer does not do him justice at all. His career is fascinating, and the people he's rubbed shoulders with is amazing. And like I said, the stories he has to tell will delight you. So I'm looking forward to you hearing my chat with him. But quickly before that, I'd like to say a big thanks to a few people first. Uh, Phil Long, who listens from Australia, McIntyre in America, and from the UK, Jonathan Walls and good friend of the show, longtime listener Andy Old. They all recently left wonderful reviews on Apple Podcasts after my little plea the other week, and it makes such a big difference. Now, Vintage Rock Pod in the last month has been in the top 10 on the Apple charts for music interviews in Britain, just outside the top 100 in the US, which, considering how many big guns and the volume of podcasts produced, is pretty amazing. It also climbed to 35 in Australia, 31 in Canada, 34 in New Zealand, 36 in Sweden, 44 in the Netherlands, and so on, so on. Fantastic to see. And a big thanks to everyone who listens from all over the world. 
So if you can, please, please, please leave a five-star review wherever possible. Spotify, allow it now. Good Pods, Podopolo, all these sorts of things, you can do that on them. And of course, Apple Podcasts, that's the big one. If you listen using your iPhone or an iPad, then that's more than likely the, the app that you use, Apple Podcasts. So please just take a minute or so to leave a little five-star review. It really, really helps the show's visibility because the algorithms picks up on that sort of thing and it shows Vintage Rock Pod to more people on the suggestions bit on apps too. Now, I don't ask for much from you, but if you can, just leave a short couple of lines, at most five stars as well, of course. It makes a huge difference. Thank you. And if you've got time as well, check out Vintage Rock Pod on YouTube. The channel is almost at a million views, which is absolutely bonkers. I love it. Thank you to everyone that watches the videos and takes part in the daily poll on there as well. If you don't know about the daily poll, I post a fun classic rock poll every single day. The effort I put into this for you guys, I tell you. More than a thousand people vote on this daily. Lately, it's been going over 2,000, which is fantastic. And there's always great discussion on there too, because we go from, I don't know, it could be prog rock albums, one day then who's your favorite heavy metal bass player the next day what's your favorite band the next that sort of thing and the discussion underneath is always always a lot of fun so please look for vintage rock pod on youtube but let's get back to corky lang then in this chat you're going to hear him tell stories about the absolute elite of classic rock it's a real who's who of course we're going to hear about his time in mountain the big song he wrote mississippi queen working with leslie west and felix but you'll also hear about him working with jack bruce ian hunter Mick Ronson, Mick Jones from Foreigner, Michael Monroe from Hanoi Rocks. You're going to hear stories about Jimi Hendrix singing backing vocals for John Lennon. A crazy story about the first time he met Keith Moon. And you're going to hear Levon Helm, Bob Ezrin, John Sebastian, Warren Zevon, uh, Eric Clapton, Steve Winwood, Simon Kirk and Rick Lee's names all crop up in here as well. Like I said, if you're a classic rock fan, and let's be honest, if you're listening to this right now, I'd say that you pretty much are, then you're going to love this interview. Plus, Corky tells us about his new record. It's called The Finish Sessions, which I highly recommend you check it out. Plus his book, Letters to Sarah, as well. It's a cram-packed, fully stacked interview. So please, please relax and enjoy this full interview with the brilliant Corky Lang. You joined Mountain basically in its infancy, didn't you? I mean, they just played Woodstock. The band was really, really new at this stage. So what was it like joining that band from the band that you were in? Oh, well, that was a, that's a long story, but I'll try to capsulize it. What happened was uh, Jimi Hendrix's manager managed to get Leslie on the show last minute. And there really wasn't a band, the way I understood it. They had Norman Smart, who played on Leslie's mountain record there was name of the record was mountain so that record was being promoted at woodstock so there really wasn't a band at that point until leslie turned around to felix and said wait a second this is going well why don't we get a proper drummer norman smart is a great drummer but he was a folk drummer he actually played with people like ian and sylvia gordon lightfoot and those people so he was really good and but they wanted somebody that could that could hit hard at the time, I was not a hard hitter, but I learned how to hit hard. And at the time, all I had from the band I was in in Montreal, the local band, was called Energy. And we played covers, a lot of dance music. So I had a cowbell and I had timbales. I didn't even have a proper rock set. And uh, so when we started playing, it served the purpose because timbales, they're like neutron bombs. They really cut. So if there was a fill in between, so, so 
it cut right through the sun amplifiers and the marshals. That's what I had to deal with because it wasn't that sophisticated at that point in terms of the drum miking. So basically it was, it was like a rugby game. It was really hard hitting. And, um, I had a good time doing it, but I didn't come from, well, there was no real heavy metal at that time, but as a result of having a cowbell and the metal timbales, when I started playing, a lot of the, I guess the reviews would say, wow, the metal sounding, and all I did, I had those just to cut. It wasn't any, there wasn't a sophistication <laughs> to it, you know what I'm saying? So at the time, I, again, in the local band, I had the cowbell. And just to, if I can, I try to put this in capsule form because it goes on. I was playing in a local band while Woodstock was starting to happen late April 69. I was in a local band in Nantucket, Cape Cod, which is a beautiful little island. Uh, and it's um, anyways, what happened? We were playing this real funky beach club. And because of the heat that that summer, Everybody got an air conditioner in Nantucket, keeping in mind it's just a small town on an island. And at that night, I guess everybody turned on the, and they blew the, the whole electrical, <laughs> electrical circuit on the island. So there was no lights when we were playing. It just went out that night. Bam. And my friend, uh, Roy, Roy Bailey and Art had called up a girlfriend of his from Mississippi to hang out in Nantucket. And they were dancing. And they, and then, you know, I was playing a phone, critical creek. She sends me if I, you know, I was covering the band and I was playing and they were dancing and I had taken a couple of soul pills, if you get the drift and I'm playing and the lights go out and all, you know, organ, all the electric, and I'm sitting there with the cowbell, you know, just hitting anything to keep them dancing because Paul, she was hot. You know, she was wearing a see-through uh, patch kind of dress. It was, and it was, you know, it was, she was perspiring. It was like one of those hot fucking nights. Anyway, so I wanted to keep her dancing because, you know, I was like looking at her and I guess like, hey, Mississippi. And I'm screaming at her because there's no mics. And I said, well, anyway, so I started making up this lyric as a rap song. Mississippi and a cowboy. Keep them dancing. Always keep them dancing with the cowboy. Hey, Mississippi. Mississippi queen, you know what I mean? And I and she started looking at me and I went, Ooh, I have a chance. Maybe I'll get lucky. Anyways, I didn't get lucky that way. Roy took her home. He got lucky, but I kept the lyric, the idea of keeping the cowbell and that going because basically it was just rap. There was nothing. So fast forward uh, a couple of weeks later, I'm in New York and they're saying, Corky, can you handle, do you think you can handle the, you know, the drumming? And I went, I, I said, let me think about it for like two seconds. And I said, yeah. And so when we went to record it, Leslie just, you know, Leslie's Felix, Felix wants, Felix wants us to write these songs. I don't know where to start. I said, do you have any lyrics? I happened to have written down the lyrics at that time. And uh, here I had them written out. I put them in front of Leslie, literally just here's the lyric. Mister, you know what I mean? This is in a way down. I did the whole thing with, and he goes, oh, shit. And he goes, Ba-da-da, and he gets right into it. Within a New York minute, we had, the song was there. Leslie just started screaming what I was screaming. And literally, it wrote itself in the limo, as they say. Anyway, so that's, then we bring it into the studio. 
after this is towards the end of the mountain climbing sessions of which I must say I was really lucky because I had brought in some songs from the local band. There's a song called Who Am I But You and the Sun, which became Yasker's Farm. And there was I had the band that I was in was a lot more commercial, I guess. Uh, and so I just brought the songs and my lady and a few. So I was lucky that way. So we bring in the queen and Felix says, I don't know. Unless he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> Fucking rocking. You kidding? Anyways, we we played it the first time. Leslie and I look at each other. We got it. Felix says, no, no. We're going, 14, 14 times later, we do it. We still use the first one. So that was <laughs> it. The best part about the story with that, and this is serious as a heart attack. Felix, at the end, we're mixing Mississippi Queen. It's the end of the studio. We had 12, 14 days to make mountain climbing. And Felix says, you know, Corky, you met Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I met him back in Montreal. Well, he's next door. They're recording the Band of Gypsies. Can you go and see if Jimmy will come in and listen to it? It's, you know, what happened? The record plant, everybody's there in New York City. So I go next door. I said, uh, excuse me, uh, Mr. Hendrix, uh, we're, we're just finishing a song. You mind coming? Just uh, get your, see what you think. So he walks in, and needless to say, everybody in the studio is like, you know, there he is. He sits, he sits down, he puts his head down, and we play the song, and everybody's like on edge. And he picks his head up, and after the end, he goes, cool. That was it. Cool. So we figured we had something. And that was, that was the story of the Queen, and that's when it became the Lee track. Because when you listen to the rest of the record, we had the other rocker was never in my life that Leslie had written and I had written before that. And yeah, it became the lead track. And the only problem with that, we should have written like 15 of those at that time, you know, <laughs> anyway. So is that enough of a story about the queen? You know, I guess, you know, <laughs> and um, yeah, that's, you know, that's the main story about it. And uh, it was a financial pleasure, Paul, I must say, you know, <laughs> 50 odd years later, 50 odd years later, you know, I'm still getting still getting royalties, which Indeed. is very good. Indeed. And speaking of royalties, you mentioned the fact that you were kind of jamming away to, to the band and you were friends with Levon Helm, weren't you? And didn't you once try to offer him um, a credit on yeah. the song as well? But he politely refused. Well, he, he was. Yeah, I knew him from Canada and stuff. Beautiful man. And I used to drive from Toronto to Nantucket. And I'd stop by his place and we'd sit and hang out. And, and I remember playing it for him. He went, holy damn, this, that's a hot track, Cork. That's good. I said, well, you know, Levon, I was, I was playing Cripple Creek. I was playing your feel, the back bat, you know? And he says, well, Corky, uh, you were playing the back beat? And he said, yeah, it was like a pubic hair off the beat. So it sounds sexy, you know? And a bat, a bunk. And I said, I really owe you some publishing. He said, Corky, I do not hear Cripple Creek in Mississippi. <laughs> you could keep the money, you know. And I, yeah, I offered it to him I mean, in a nice way. But um, yeah, he was a big fan. He was a big fan. Well, Leslie lived in Woodstock for a period of time with those guys. And we got to be friendly with them. Beautiful bunch of guys. Beautiful time. Incredible stuff. We've got lots to talk about, so we're going to move on slightly. But in terms yeah. of Mountain then, I mean, they remain a classic rock staple. You mean Mississippi Queen is, is always on the radio. It's an absolute legendary track. The, the band are fantastic. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Um, What would you say is the band's legacy then, thinking back now? I would say... uh... It's hard to think about because I'm in the forest, you know, from the trees. Uh, but um, the legacy, I thought Nantucket Slayer Ride, which, by the way, when we did tour England, that's the song that people responded to because of that news, uh, that news station that played it. And that was great, you know, so we, we announced it. But the legacy of Mississippi Queen and they had Nantucket Slayer Ride, I believe there was a classical background. Because of Felix, he, he was a classical musician, it had a credibility because of the fact that it wasn't just blatant street rock. It had the street gut, but it also had this, uh, I guess, aesthetics or what do you, uh, what's the word for it? Well, basically, it was musical. And because of Felix bringing in Steve Knight to play the keyboard, so we had that wonderful sonic around it that Felix would, he really, he really created that vibe on the bottom end. So I'd like to think that there's a musical credibility to Mountain, even though it did, I guess, get known as the heavy, the original heavy rock band. And um, yeah, I would say if there was a song, I would say that and uh, Traveling in the Dark. Stuff like where we took it and we made it our own, you know, and um, and it, I think it came alive when we did tour the UK. And I'm not blowing smoke. The fact is the UK have big... They have better ears in a lot of ways. And I'm not blowing. The fact is they seem to listen into different parts of a record. You know, the power of a studio has different, you know, I don't know technically how to say it, but there's a juice that comes through the studio in America and the juice that comes through the studios, like, you know, in in England, just it's a little more powerful. I, I don't know if that's the word powerful, but uh, definitely immediate. And um, mm-hmm. so when it came to playing certain things, we felt, I'll give you a perfect example. If this coffee's kicking in, by the way, <laughs> what happened? Crystal Palace was our first gig, right? Oh, yeah. Now, we were, we were so excited. It was our first big gig in 70s, 1970. And the Pink Floyd, Rod Stewart, they're on the show. I mean, that's the kind of... So we were up there, and you know, I don't know if you remember, Crystal Palace, they had a, a pond in front of the stage. Yeah. Beautiful setting. And I remember Felix turning around and says, shit, how do we know if they... They're so far away because the audience is in the, in the field out there. They're beautiful. Big audience, too. And he said, I don't know how we're going to... Because usually you get the feel from the audience. And at that point, we were in the set, and we're getting that polite, you know, UK. It's wonderful. It's brilliant. Are we getting that? (laughs) And Dan Felix says, come on. I said, you know what? Wait a minute. So I used to take the stick. I was playing so hard, the sticks would break, and I would get splinters. 
you know, I mean, a lot of drummers like, so I used, I used to keep the extras. So I just, as I was playing, I take the stick off the cymbal, a certain thing, and the cymbal would jettison out to the crowd, but there was no crowd. It was a pond. And so what happened is a stick went into the pond and people started rushing and diving oh, into wow. the pond for the <laughs> stick. How else do you find out if they like you? They're going to swim to it. That was a wonderful moment. So, you know, I take that to the UK. Incredible stuff, incredible stuff. And I think as well, at that time in the UK, we, we can talk about the bands that were coming through that were being well-received and blown up, Led Zeppelins and Purples and Uriah Heaps and Black Sabbaths yeah. and all that sort of stuff. So they were receptive to that kind of heavier music, weren't they? They were, they were. And the thing was, I figured out, because all the English bands look great. They're all dressed beautifully. They look hot. It's because they had the magazines in England. You had three music express. You had all, you know, any, whatever it is. They have pictures. So a lot of the English bands, they look great. The American bands, they're all looking like schleps with lumberjacks, you know, the Eagles, what are they wearing? <laughs> flannel shirts you know we caught we spent a fortune on trying to look that way but the key thing there was like yeah it was the time it was a lot of energy going into the optics you know and so when we got there let's see we'd go shopping we'd all go out what are we gonna we get this cordoba we'll go to cordoba get the get the leather and then we'll go to go hill and we'll get the the boots we got to get the big boots here i never wore those boots before i felt like it was in a fashion at the met gala walking around these boots but i'm just saying we tried to look like that and keeping in mind there was leslie west in those days, you had all the beautiful lead guitar player, Peter Frampton, you know, all that. And so Leslie was, he's not quite the English rocker. He'd go up, <laughs> but he would dress. He would dress beautifully. He'd always have something attractive to him. And Felix had his pants all handmade. I was in the back. They didn't give a shit what I was wearing. I could wear nothing. They wouldn't notice. But um, <laughs> that, that, yeah, that time, the bands, you know, a lot of it was the looks. And then here we come in we were the prettiest band around, you know, and um, but it worked musically. It really worked. You know, we had Island Records behind us. We had that. Yeah, we had it was a, it was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful time indeed. And uh, when you talk about Mountain, I mean, you, you released, was it two or three records before you, you split up for the first time? And I heard you say before that it was almost a wasted opportunity. Obviously, Felix and Leslie weren't on the same page at this stage, but you said it was a wasted opportunity, really, wasn't it, that, that you guys split up when you did? Yes. <laughs> I mean, what don't you understand about yes? It was fucked <laughs> up. You know, what happened was, well, the fact is they were dynamically two different people. Yeah. You had Felix, you had Felix, classically trained, skinny little Mario looking guy. And then you had Leslie, this Jolly Rogers kind of this. And from my vantage point, the best seat in the house, I had Felix, this little skinny guy on the lead down the stage. <laughs> and Leslie, and of course, Steve Knight was on the, on the side. And it, we weren't the typical looking band. And so as we came up, Felix was already a star. He had produced Cream and they were like the thing. And, uh, and needless to say, people were trying to compare us, which, you know, which was ridiculous because it was really different band. And, uh, and it was funny because in the papers, you see the musicians would actually, especially with the New Music Express, you get these yeah. opinions from different musicians. I remember like a Ginger Baker saying, 
Yeah, how the fuck can you compare Crane to Mountain? Crane was the thing, you know, and the fucking corky lag. Who the fuck is he? You know, that kind of shit. <laughs> I'm laughing. Oh, wow. He knows my name, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, and it was funny because, yeah, that was that that communication, uh, you know, in the public communication. And I'll never forget one of the papers came out. The headline was Jeff Beck quotes leslie west is the best rock guitar player alive jeff beck i kept that you know and i went you can't get any better endorsement than that uh, at the time and i think you know needless to say leslie's balls blew up and at the time <laughs> felix was doing his thing yeah all of a sudden the ego came into it yeah. it happens to every band we all know the stories but yeah it was a waste because at the time May I say, and again, you name a band, there's no problem with the rating and who's in charge. Well, as the band was getting, Mountain was getting eh, commercial to that extent. Coincidentally, Leslie and I wrote, you know, the songs that were being played, except for the uh, Jack Bruce's uh, Themes and Imaginary Western. And uh, so Felix started taking the writing. All of a sudden, if you look at the second and third writing, you'll see where Felix and his wife at the time, Gail, they wrote. And it, you know, there was a little bit adversary situation where, well, come on, like you know, I didn't really think of it that way. To give you a perfect example, Mississippi Queen was riding the charts in America, and Felix comes, I think we're in Nashville. So you're not gonna believe that. I got some great news, Cork. The second record's gonna be Who Am I But You and the Sun, Yasker's Farm. Felix sang it. And I went, he says, you're going to get, you got publishing on your second record. I'm 20 years old, whatever. And I'm, wow, it's pretty good. But I still thought, I said, well, wait a second, Felix, that's a ballad. You know, the queen is, is this hard rock thing. And, I, and then the next thing to that was um, never in my life. Leslie and I are saying, Felix, never, you know, we, but he sang it and he wanted his voice out there. So you get, a beautiful ballad, by the way, and I was happy with it. Yeah, it was, again, a financial pleasure, but the fact is it was the wrong move, you know? And then we had to catch up with the rock thing. So there were things like that. And yeah, I mean, you had Felix, again, he had already made his mark as a producer and coming in as a bass player with Mountain. And so Leslie would, you know, you, when you become that, when you start that overtly, I hate to use celebrity, but popularity, you want to know how much is yours. You know, how much, yeah. how much. And of course, the whole thing about a band, and this is where Levon Helm comes in. The band is always bigger than the individuals. And it will be that way because it's a fucking band, <laughs> you know? And that's what I thought. I was like the Henry Kissinger of that band. Felix, I was doing everything I could just keep it together. And, you know, God knows the other, you know, the greed that comes into it. And, uh, yeah, as opposed to when Wes Bruce and Ryan got together and there's Jack singing his ass off. Leslie, I'm going, and I'm in the middle of that one. Don't ask me why, by the way, but I'm like, wow. And but there was no it was it was all the three of us split all the writing. Can you imagine, Paul? I'm able to co-write with fucking Jack. <laughs> you know, who, by the way, when he's playing keyboard, he goes, Scottish, right? You know, you're fucking simple. I said, what is simple? 
simple, motherfucker, simple. And I said, well, I didn't know to take it as a compliment or not. But, you know, at the time, I think it served itself well because Jack was so far ahead of everybody in terms of musically fusion jazz. And Leslie, you know, he was just whatever Jack said, fine. It was it was nice. The only problem with that, I know I'm going fast forward on this. No, from no, Mountain, but well, it just was it happened really quick. We were still touring with Mountain all over with free by the way and we were touring well at the same time Leslie and I were rehearsing with Jack and we didn't even have a record out and the managers fucking what's his name Stigwood and our management they're booking us all over America we don't even have a record out yet and it's sold out we're getting all the talk about pressure and that's the problem at that era if I may say so where a lot of bands were under total pressure and that's what hurts it's it just started the pressure just gets to everybody. So what do you do, Paul? You have a couple of snorts of this. You have a little drink here and play, and you get a little lucky, and you go. That's what happened. How's that in capsule form? And, but wow, it was good. Uh, it was fantastic. it was good, bad fun. It was really good, bad fun. Go ahead. <laughs> really good, bad fun. No, I was, I was going to say you, you'd mentioned again in a previous interview that the fact that when you three guys worked together, it was crazy and it, it was kind of spiraling as well at one time. You say the crazy, yeah. bad fun and things like that, and that you were lucky to actually get through that period. Yes, yes. That was too bad. That was too bad. I mean, they were putting so much pressure on. And all I wanted to do on a personal level was have a little time to write the lyrics. Because you had Pete Brown writing the lyrics for Jack and Cream, right? And I'm saying to myself, oh, shit, how I needed that time. It would be like me playing. We got to try. Here, Cork, write the lyric. Cork, the lyric. I don't consider myself a lyricist, but when you have to write, you're a lyricist. And I did. I did the best I could. But it was kind of getting away. So I felt we never had a chance to write the songs together that we could. We had the energy. And you're right. It was chaotic and stuff. But that was that was the street level of where we were. And everybody came down to that and just rocked. I mean, Jack came down from his pedestal, you know, with Tony Williams. I mean, that's beautiful shit. And Leslie and, you know, we were just trying to find our way. We did the best we could, you know, at that time. <laughs> what can I say? And it was pretty damn good indeed. The music that you guys came up with was incredible. Well, um, just you. something That's else I want to touch on again, just to, to move Go on slightly. Um, you, you worked with Leslie an awful lot, um, Mountain Reformed after Felix, and a few yeah. times you put out different records. But something you did do with Felix, with with Felix and Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson, there was this two more legends as well, that we, these names that we're throwing around that you're working with. Um, you recorded an album with these guys, didn't you? But it didn't get released at the time. Um, it did subsequently, but tell us about that that period of time and what was happening and why that that record with you four legends didn't get released. Oh yeah, that was keeping in mind that late seventies, right? We're just sort of like, what's going to happen now? The president of Electra Asylum says, "Cork, I love you and all that." The first record I put it out on that, and I wanted to get the lead singer at the time. Mick Jones and I were working together with Leslie Westpad. And I played some of the songs that I was writing myself. And Mick says, get a lead singer. These songs are really strong. And I went looking here and there. And I, this is for my first album. So I felt that I didn't come up for the par. He did. He went out and got a lead singer and hands foreigner. You know, I mean, it took yeah. him a year to get a lead singer. <laughs> Anyways, I'm digressing. What happens was the, the head of the company says, can you get a super band together? You know, uh, 
we have what's the guy's name that produced the wall a very famous uh, producer from canada i can't think of his name he was gonna produce us you'll think about it we'll google it uh the yeah. point <laughs> the point is is that i knew ian really well we got together and he says yeah man. bob Ezrin. good one you get behind the first curtain. You got it, Paul. Good for you. Bob Mesrit. <laughs> Bob was going to produce it. I mean, it was going to be. And, you know, Ian says we get, you know, at the time, um, Ian was in between millions, I guess. And he had just, he, he didn't have a deal. And so he figured, I go, yeah, this will be good. And we brought in Steve Hunter to play. We brought in Lee Michaels, if you believe it. I love Lee okay. Michaels. But trouble is he smoked all his pot and went into Ian Hunter's piano. <laughs> And it was a fallout on that. And we had Andy Fraser playing bass, who I loved him. Great guy. So it was beginning to take shape. We even called, we even called um the traffic, come on, Steve Winwood. He was in a, living in a living in a tent. Yeah, we called, we were calling. We said, we got money. We got a record deal. Come on board. And at the time, and then what happened is the Rose came out with Bette Midler. We lost Steve Hunter. He was off to L.A. All of a sudden, it started disintegrating to where and Andy Fraser was going back to some something. And, you know, it was and we did record in this studio up in Briarcliff. And I'm trying to figure at that point, it was Ian and myself. And there was Felix that, you know, doing basically nothing. I said, Felix, why don't you come in and just play bass? Don't worry about anything else. So we did. We went to the power station, the four of us, Mick Ronson, myself, him, and we recorded the basics. And then we took it to Woodstock, to Bearsville. Todd Rundgren came down, Paul Butterfield. And all of a sudden, the music started. John Sebastian, it was really fun. And, of course, we had enough tie stick to go around for everybody at the time. We were up on the mountain there in in Woodstock uh, and – Eddie, who was Eddie Offord was on was on the um, uh, on the uh, board. It was great, and it was just developing. And then, and then Ian got a deal with Steve Popovich. <laughs> it's like at that band spermed spurred. And at the time, I remember he says, "You know, can we get Nick Ronson to help us?" I love Nick, but it's going to cost us a fortune. Turns out, Ian said, "Don't worry about it." Mick comes and he just blows it wide open, right? Comes in the sweetest guy, and uh, yeah, and then we go in the studio. Who's the guy? <laughs> uh, Velvet Underground. Who's the guy? Um, the, the lead guy. Uh, I'm sorry, you know. Um, Lou Reed. Get, not Lou Reed. The other guy. The, the, oh. the real. Uh, I'm sorry about that, but there's a lot going in. Um, <laughs> anyways, we were in the studio doing a lot of recording at the time, and um, Mick Ross, and we recorded a couple of tracks. And during that time, going into the 80s, it was kind of like the big, you know, the we, they called the band at the time on the mountain. There was no name. They just called Pompeii. You know, they, we, it was like totally overdone. And um, I guess Ian got a record deal. I still had my record deal, but it was half finished. And uh, Felix went off the, and I don't even know what happened, but it was fun. That was, that was really just creative. We got in there and we were writing songs. Ian's a brilliant writer, you know, and I loved his writing. I mean, I, he, st- he had stuff in his in his garbage, in his basket, songs that were amazing. I thought, you know, uh, oh, ships in the night. I look at look at this. Ian, he's oh, it's a fucking ballad, man. I'm a rocker. I'm a rocker. I don't want to put a ballad. I'm fucking rock. I said, this is a hit. Sure enough, Barry Antelope, Barry Manilow picked up number one. <laughs> 
You know, I mean, this is in his garbage. Anyway, so the um, quite a time. That was the end of the 70s into the 80s. And at that time, the record company, they started, you know, signing all the smaller bands, you know, all the, I forget, new wave bands, mm-hmm. Elvis Costello. And they started doing that. And at the time, it was it was difficult. It was difficult because it was the 80s. And heavy rock was out was going out the back door. Uh, I I did cut my hair. I tried to accommodate, you know, the punk rock. I played CBGBs. You know, nobody noticed, but I played that with some bands. It was a lot of fun, but it was the city. I was in the city doing that. And that's during that time I had this band called The Mix, who was produced by Jack Douglas, who did Aerosmith. And he loved the lead singer. I loved the album. We did. We worked for two, three years with Lieber and Krebs, big management. And I'm I'm trying to figure out why am I talking about that? That segues back into Leslie coming out of rehab, sort of to speak, say, hey, Gorg, you want to come out and play some shows? And I said, you know what? Yeah. So I went out. That's when the new mound started. And that's when Felix was suing us. I hope you're taking notes here, Paul. Yeah, the best. Yeah. <laughs> 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 anyway, so and and that's. I'm sorry to say that's when that tragedy with Felix and Gail happened. So it was like every, everything was starting to turn around. Leslie and I put together what we could at the time, but when you have a guy like Felix, if I may so say so on the show, you, you know, certain people in a band are the mainstays. That's point zero. You know, Felix was able to work with Leslie. I was good, but I wasn't that good. And we brought in some people. Again, Mick Jones played with us. And and that's when I sort of bailed. I sort of went out to do what I do. And um, it's in the book. It's in the book. It is in the book. book. Letters to Sarah. Um, so incredible I, I mean, we've, got, we've got letters to Sarah to come very soon and in the finish uh, okay. sessions as well but a couple of more little questions if you don't mind first Cocky, I'm no, taking up I, your time I, um, uh, Paul Paul I'm sitting here in the country in Finland <laughs> all right it's beautiful here I got my gorgeous wow. girl here and uh, it's it's beautiful I have time go ahead Living the dream, living the dream. Yeah, yeah. Now here on Vintage Rock Pop, we like to hear these stories about these legends and you've, you've said so many already, it's been incredible. Uh, but one I'd like to hear about is uh, Keith Moon. You were good friends with Keith. Yes. And um, yeah, that went on for, for a while, obviously. But you did have a little run-in the first time you ever met him, didn't you, with a, a sequined Union Jack jacket. Uh, Union can you tell Jack. us that story? I love that one. <laughs> yeah. So what happens in those days, in British Invasion, Paul, comes in, and at that time, they had the musicians had to go through Montreal to get their visas before they do the big shows in the States, especially New York. So people like Hendrix were coming, or The Who, uh, Traffic, all those bands, the Trogs came through Montreal. It so happens that the band that we had energy had a studio deep inside underground th- that we were able to play 24-7. And so we were opening a lot of these shows because our manager, Book it was like Madison Square Garden. The felt you know the forum was the hockey the hockey rink, but that's where all the big shows went. Anyway, so when Hendrix came through, he wasn't as big in Montreal yet. You know, I mean, we're talking about yeah these was the mid yeah late sixties early seventies. Yeah. We were our band would open the shows for these bands because you had to be you had to use a Canadian band. So we yeah. lucked out. So we opened the show for the Who, opened the show for Hendrix. You know, <laughs> it was great. So, coming to the story about that, 
Um, I, I think I made it clear in my days that Keith Moon was my guy. That was my guy. Not far as you. We were also at the same label over there. They were on track okay. records. We were managed by the same people. So we knew each other from that. Leslie was very friendly with Pete Townsend. So it was good. Anyway, so forget the exact year, but we playing the show and the people in the audience never saw the Who Break Everything Up. It's Canada. This is their first big show. And yeah, they're going crazy and the crowd's riot and it was bad. And everything's flying. And I go behind at the end of the show, things quiet down. I go behind the stage where I put my drum set. I stay, you know, I stored it there. And I go and I see, see this beautiful jacket, all sequenced with the flag. What do you call it? You know, the Union uh, Jack, yeah. Union Jack, the one that he used or the Pete used in all the promo. Yeah. And I pick it up, Paul. And I go, I guess he doesn't want it. He threw it off. You know, we're talking under the stage. I pick it up and I put it under my coat. And I go back to the dressing room, hockey hockey locker room, and I say, hey, guys, in my band, I said, I got Keith Moon's jacket. And they say, what are you talking about? Well, he threw it off the stage. I guess he doesn't, doesn't want it. Sure enough, at that moment, the locker room next door with the Hoover, screaming and shouting, There's, I'm going to get me fucking jacket. My jacket's on stage. I'm going to get my jacket. I'm not doing it that great, but okay. Go with me on that one. I got to get on my set. I got to go. And there, and he's got no clothes on. He's going out to the out to the stage along the hall. They're holding him back because I got to get the. And he's and he's going past the dressing room. I, and I see him. I said, Keith, Keith. He said, No, no autographs now. I'm going to get me jacket. Me grandma made me jacket, and it's my first year. The whole thing. And I go, No. And he keeps walking. I said, Keith. I screamed. I took the jacket. I went, Here it is. And he looks at me. And at that point, I went, what the fuck is he going to do? He comes at me and he grabs me by the fucking coat. And he says, I can't believe it, mate. You got me jacket. You got me jacket. I'll never forget you. And he gives me a great big kiss, as only Keith Moon could do. No tongue. Big kiss. I go, whoa, whoa. This is, and he says, walk away. I'll never forget you, mate. I'll never forget you. And he's walking out. And I said, I don't know what came over me. I said, um, Keith, I was going to steal it. And I said, what the fuck did I say that for? Anyways, he comes back, and this time his eyes are out of his head. And he comes up and grabs me again. But you didn't steal it, did you, mate? You got it back to me. I love you even more. Another big kiss right on the lips. At this point, I thought we had a relationship, Paul. Anyways, he walks <laughs> out, and he stays just – the point is he remembered all that as we were on the road. As a matter of fact, when they played Madison Square Garden, Happened. I took him for dinner somewhere, and the next day he says, "You got to come to the show." I said, "Okay." And he gives me a little button because each of the guys in the band they sold out four nights had a button for that night. And he sat me right behind Pete Townsend's amps. Had a little table, a little, little coffee table with you know whatever he needed on stage. And he's sitting right there, Paul. He's right there, and I'm looking at him, and it's it's beyond me. So I'm looking. I'm trying to figure what is he doing. How does he do that? You know, I'm, I'm right there. We get off the stage and what would you think? Hey, what'd you, well, and he's walking up. Everybody's happy. Go back to the trip. I said, uh, Keith. And he said, don't ask me any questions. Don't ask me what I do. No fucking idea. And anyway, so we, we had a relationship. Fast forward again when I'm doing my, my tour, my band in California, and I'm playing the whiskey. All right. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
nobody shows up (laughs) except Levon, except Warren Zevon and Keith Moon. They were the only two people. It was like (laughs) 10 people showed up, but they were, and I remember because the head of the, of the uh, agency, the booking, all the big shots were there and who comes backstage, but Keith, they go great. But how many people in the audience? Bingo, you know, but yeah, so we had, we had a, we had a, a great, a great time. And when we were in England, he would come about, you know, to the to the uh, wherever we were staying, and we'd hang out. And uh, yeah, then there's uh, what's his name, the fellow that wrote the Who book, great guy. I uh, can't think of him in there now. I will. It'll, it'll, I'll get a brain fart in a minute. So he wrote the book on Keith, and it's in the book. A lot of that stuff, I think, is in his book. It's certainly in my book. Yeah, yeah. Is that enough? Is that that's that's all right? Cocky, absolutely fantastic. Am I missing anything? Am I missing? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, no. The point is how how great. What I mean, everybody loved him. I wasn't the only. But the fact that he took me under his wing was Mm. uh, unbelievable. Very cool. Very cool guy indeed. And and one last story before we get to the book and finish sessions. Um, John Lennon. Um, and again, we'll leave that. We'll leave the the bedding story to the book readers to, to to listen to learn about that one. But you actually yeah. sang uh, backing vocals on his album Rock and Roll, didn't you? Yeah, um, but yeah. Tell us about that. That's a fun story. It was a fun story because um, at the time I forgot I was recording and one of the record plant, and he was doing the album with Jim Keltner on drums and yeah. and uh, May Pang was the key there that was the weekend the, the last weekend and she came into the studio she says we need some background singers everybody want do you want to dance remember that song so because he yes. was cutting all the songs that he loved over the years and yeah. uh and so alice cooper was there uh i was there i forget a few of the i think steve tyler came and we were all just the five of us <laughs> ten of us singing do you want it? you know it was that was our background singers and it was a lot of fun you know, and um, I remember going in at, uh, in the studio and John was there and I'm listening to Jim Keltner play the bass drum fill on Forgotten, one of the songs. And I said to um, to John Lennon, I said, John, you know, that that bass drum feel is really something. He must have a great foot. John says, don't fool yourself, man. He played mallets. <laughs> that wasn't a bass drum. It was, he played the, anyways, it's sort of the inside drummer joke, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. That was, well, the record plant was where everybody sort of went, you know, and uh, everybody was there. So it was pretty, and it was New York, it was downtown New York. And again, that era, you know, that was an era. Yeah. Incredible era and incredible names and incredible stories. Yeah. And the best way to find out more of these stories rather than sitting listening to us is to, to get your book, fantastic book, Letters uh, to Sarah. It's something that came out maybe a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, I think, wasn't it? Before COVID yes. went and shut the world down. But uh, it's not your usual kind of rock star autobiography. Explain to us a little bit how it's structured and, and, and how it came about. Well, I'll tell you the best I can because my partner right here is listening to this podcast. I better get it right. <laughs> she was really the writer. Tuya Tikala. Okay, she was a she's a she's a brilliant, brilliant girl. And uh, she wanted at one point she saw my Wikipedia and she said, no, um, do you want want to come and tell about this? I can't keep on getting this wrong. Okay, fast forward. What happened was over the years, I used to write my mother on the road, whether I was in armpit, Nebraska or Carnegie Hall. And when I got back to the hotel, I keep in touch with my mom. Because I came from a big family. I don't want her to know, don't forget me. So I, over the years, <laughs> right up until, you know, the end of the 90s, all a lot of letters. Wow. 
I didn't know that she saved them. My mother saved them. And that, yeah, she saved big drawer. And as my mom, when mom passed away, she gave it to my sister who gave it to my brother as each. And it came down and they were, they were stored in this rehearsal place that we had. And at the time, Tuya Tikala found these letters and she says, well, wait a second. You know, let's maybe think about this. Let's not do a story about, you know, partying with Ozzy Osbourne and snorting ants off a kitchen table. Let's make it a book. Let's make it a real book. And she is. She's an editor. And um, so she did. She we took we took the letters and we put them as little points, windows of time. And I would embellish what else was going on at that time in my life. And from the time I started in Montreal to the time, you know, till she passed away. So the letters are there. And then I so that 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 would be the mainstay, the chronological stories that came down. And keeping in mind, Paul, I was very lucky. You know, I always say that, you know, people go, well, how do you do this? And just be lucky, get lucky, because I happened to meet a lot of these people, especially during the British invasion, before they were heroes. I mean, I was hanging with Eric Clapton and, you know, while we we're waiting for Jack to get out of the hospital because he OD'd in Montreal because he was really upset with the Rolling Stone review of Disraeli years. I mean, all that shit, it's all it was that little window, big window of time. That, you, you know, if you're there, Bill Buford once said, and I always thought in life, it's about when you're born, you know, just, you know, and I go back to this, that in the 60s, well, in the 50s, to be a teenager was to be a nobody. To be a teenager in the 60s was to be an everybody. I was a teenager, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners would know about that. If they were around the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of shit going on, and it was good shit. You know what I mean? And you had to be lucky to be there. And that's sort of what, what, what I'm, I'm, I'm privileged to be part of all that. I just don't want to seem like a name dropper, you know, which I am. But the fact is, <laughs> the, well, the fact is, it's all good. And it just happens to be crossing paths with, with a lot of these people at a time when they were looking to cross paths, you know, everybody was looking for something, especially like you're talking about Ian Hunter and, uh, you know, and free was breaking up and Mott was breaking up. There was all these bands that so well breaking up mountain was breaking up. Felix, you know, Felix didn't want to tour that much anymore. I think he had, he was burnt. He was being producer you know, manager, he he had all the titles, he had all the hats. So at that point, he was burnt. Leslie and I were far from burnt. We wanted to keep it going. But that era, the end of the 60s, early 70s, everybody was looking for something. They forgot that where they were was really what's happening. You know, I mean, those bands were great. And it's starting to come out now, 50 years later. Oh, do you remember that band? Do you remember that band? You know better than anybody. You're interviewing these people. And they're telling you about a time and place. And it was a great time and it was a great place. Absolutely. And like we said, the, the book, Their Letters to Sarah, it, it's got all these stories in, but it's also got the personal touch because it is your letters to your mother. So I definitely recommend everyone to go out there and, and get hold of it. Letters to Sarah, it's your yeah, story. It's, it's on Amazon. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, Yeah. It's available in audio books too. And Tuja forced me to actually do the voiceover. <laughs> it's like therapy when you're looking out, really? Did I do this? Really? They were, listen, <laughs> It's not exclusive. At the time, there was a lot going on. And uh, I think a lot of musicians were saying, yeah, I should get that written out. I ran into Simon Kirk the other night at the Dino Dinelli yeah. trip. And we were talking about that. 
like before somebody else writes about you and doesn't get it right, maybe you try to get it right. So I think Tui and Takala got it right. And I think that's why it reads the way it reads. I just, I had the story. She, you know, um, it's like, like get back to leave on help. When he's talking about the band, he says, you know, yes. talk about the, uh, Robbie Robertson and says, you know, Cork, he says, um, I made it up. He wrote it down. You know, it's the writing down. <laughs> that's the hard part. I just love that one. You know, it's kind of a very a little, little stop in the back. Yeah. So that, uh, thank you for the kind words about the book. I appreciate that. It's a, I hope I got a lot of it right. Cause I'm still, still trying to, I'm glad I still got a memory, you know, and I mean, everybody else, a lot of people are dirt napping right now and I'm, you know, I'm trying to get it right. What we're talking about. <laughs> You Absolutely. Know. And uh, you're a busy boy as well. Like we said, uh, the book and everything. But you, you've put out a new record as well recently as well, The Finished Sessions. And we have to speak about this. It's a fantastic record. Nine songs on there. Um, rocking Hard. There's some nice ballads on there as well. So um, it's something, yeah. obviously, Finished Sessions. You've recorded it in Finland with uh, some yeah. brilliant uh, Scandinavian musicians. So tell us a little yeah. bit about this record and how it all oh, that came together. Yeah. I will. I'll tell you. Uh, uh, when I go back, we had this rock opera. Uh, called Playing God. The Tuja really was started that. And she knows all these musicians around Helsinki and, and Sweden and stuff. She's in touch. And so we were putting this rock opera together, which was a lot of fun. And from that, these musicians who I played around here, fast forward to the COVID time, I had this friend of Tuja, well, my friend of mine, Harry, guitar player, and he had his band and the, the John and the musicians that happened to be around, I would I'd go picking and I'd be playing. I'd be by myself, but and they would join in. So I had a great opportunity at a studio here around the corner near where I am right now. I go, I play, I write. And, you know, it's it's a long road to lead singing. I found that out. You know, a lot of people think, you know, lead singers, this and no. From the drum set to the front of the stage, it's not 15 feet. It's 15,000 feet. It's out there. So to go out and do it on my own was difficult. But these musicians, not only they're great musicians, great to play with and hang. So we were doing this, and I had Maria, a great singer from, from Finland, and she helped me with the vocals because there are certain things I write that I couldn't accomplish vocally. And she came in and helped me. And, you know... uh Michael Monroe, by the way, today I think is like 10 year anniversary to when Michael Monroe jumped on stage when I was all alone. And um, and uh, where was I across across the way? Um, Estonia. I was doing yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I was anyways, we were on a boat and a lot of bands were playing. But I went on there to do my thing. Nobody showed up in the hallway until it was announced that Michael Monroe jumped on stage with me <laughs> out of nowhere. I didn't even know he was there and made it happen. And as it turned out, Mike helped me with the record, too. Just a brilliant man. And yeah. Um, yeah, and Ian Hunter came back and helped me on some keyboards through the Internet. And uh, John Sebastian helped me on it. And wow. the record came together and these musicians helped me really assemble it. And Tuja Takala helped produce it. And it came together and I was happy with it. It was like, I didn't know. I didn't have a record deal. You know, it was just like no pressure. And I, I had a great time. And I'm really thrilled that it's getting the response it's getting because, you know, um, I was never known as a vocalist, songwriting, you know, but um, I came into myself a little bit with the vocals. A lot of it has to do with, you know, with your self-esteem, with your, 
you know, um, how, how you feel. It's a lot yeah, of confidence. Therapy. Yeah. Confidence. Exactly the word. And I didn't have, and I, it came together for that record. And because of the fact that I had the secret sessions, which you referred to at the beginning of this uh, session, um, then I had a sessions in, Toledo. I Toledo, made a record yeah. with these guys, which was, in other words, I go where the music can cre be created. I, it's a selfish thing, but I said, fuck it. I'm going to go and do it. Nobody else is going to do my record. I got it. And I know there's a lot of musicians out there going, hey, okay, I got to do my own thing now. So <laughs> I went to Toledo, did that record, which came out. And then uh, this came on, an, on a German company. You helped us put this one out, finish session, which you're right, just came out I think last six months, whatever it is, I don't know exactly, but it's available online like <laughs> everything else these days. But yeah, thank you for the kind words about finished sessions. It's, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun and uh, we'll do more. We actually were on the road now, if I may be a promo slut and get ready. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> what happened from those musicians getting together, we had such a great time. We did the whole record in 24 hours after rehearsing it, of course, at this great studio here in, in Finland. And we're sitting around and we said, well, geez, what are we going to do now? Well, Tuja says, well, maybe we'll book a couple of dates over here while everybody's here. Well, what are you going to call the band? The Bobos. So that's the name of the band <laughs> that is playing. the. I'm, I'm here this week. We're going into rehearsal. Actually, I was rehearsing today this week next week and then we're going to norway and then we're going to sweden and finland and we're doing these shows not big shows you know shows music shows i'm thrilled about it because it's like a whole it's a whole new vibe you know yeah i mean uh, i'm not sort of jack, i'm not jack white who goes and makes 17 <laughs> bands he has the talent to do that but um yeah it's it's gonna be fun this is i'm really looking forward to this uh because all these guys play beautifully and we're going to play the record. It's, I've never done that where, you know, we're going to play this record to finish sessions along with some mountain rec mountain songs. And uh, again, the, the uh, instrument, the instruments are different. We have a violin. Maria plays violin. Everybody's going to play. It's going to be fun. You know, I, I feel like we're in the Almond Brothers. Everybody's doing different things, different <laughs> drums and stuff. But it's going to be the shows are I'm really looking forward. And if I'm talking fast, it's because the 13th coffee is kicking in right now. You know, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> so again, oh. and you're super excited as well. And so you should be because it's, it's a good record and it's great to be out on the road and, and still doing everything like that. So yeah, it is. Absolutely it is. Wonderful. It is. It, that, that's it's an addiction. You know, I'm sorry to say that I'm the last man on the mountain. But there are other valleys and mountains to climb. And it's just, it's in your bones. It's in your life. You know, yeah. again, we're at, without going on too much, we're meeting up with all these drummers at the Dino Dinelli. You got, you know, Liberty DeVito, Simon Kirk. You got uh, Sean Pallick from Saturday Night Live. All these drummers, Peter Chris. We're all talking. And it's the first time that you get together to celebrate like Dino. We're not talking about ourselves, but in so far as, survival i mean steve jordan comes down you know i mean it was like it was drum heaven i mean there was more <laughs> rhythm in that in that cutting room than any place it was wonderful but we did talk about the whole idea as i told you before about how to stay alive how to stay alive and the only person that can do it is each one of us and there is something in the dna of every drummer 
Number one, they own a set of drums. Number two, <laughs> they get a call saying, I'd like you to play. That's the key. You got to get the calls. But um, but it's a pleasure to talk to you, Paul. I know you're out there in the UK. And we're coming to the UK, may I add, oh, brilliant. Uh, to the Cambridge Festival, along with a good friend of mine from 10 years after, Rick Lee. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we've had Rick on the show before, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's great. He's a great guy, you know. And we just look at each other and we say, how the fuck are we still alive? You know, that's <laughs> that kind of stuff. I'm sorry to have to put it that. I don't know if you're allowed the language, but it's Canadian. It's not really swearing. But, um, <laughs> yes, so what I'm saying is that it's wonderful to do this again after half a century. I don't believe it. I have to pinch myself every now and then, but I got to be careful where I pinch myself. And it's, it's I'm, I'm coming up with them. Don't let me go, Paul. I'm, I'm cooking here. <laughs> You're very much still with us, and that's the best thing to hear. Um, yes, what's the you. best way of, of fans keeping in touch and finding out what you're doing then, Corky? Well, um, CorkyLangWorks.com. Somebody took Corky Lang Plays. I don't know who has it. CorkyLangWorks.com. <laughs> and then it has, it tells the, the concerts uh of where we're going to be and i think the latest records and uh yeah that would be there and again we're going to be i don't know the names of the clubs but somewhere in norway in norway we'll be there next week just check out the country it's out there there. there. um yeah i guess the website corkylangworks.com and again um any of the uh, creative formats are available on Amazon, like a lot of people. And so far, so good, you know. And I appreciate your chat with you. It's been a kind. It's been it's been a kind of wonderful time. Because at this point, the coffee's wearing off. That's <laughs> 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 terrible. By the way, uh, okay, no, That's, he's asleep now. He's gone. Oh, it's all right. No, if there's anything more, I'm here for you, Paul. Whatever you want to sign off no. on, you can. You know, that's all good. That's perfect. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed your time. I really enjoy speaking with drummers. I've literally spoken to so many Carmine and, as you said, Simon Kirk and yeah. uh, Rick Lee and Cosmo. And oh, honestly, I've had so many drummers on the show. It's, they're always great that's to speak great. to. You always tell great. the best that- stories. Well, because, you know, you're sitting in the back, but you have the best yeah, seat in the house. You get to you know? see everything, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you, you look, you're able to control the, the band, you're able to control the crowd. <laughs> it's a lot of strength, you know, you're king of the world, yeah. there's no question. There's a reason why they call it the drum throne, you know, that we sit yeah, on. That's but it. that's great, that's great that all the drummers should talk to. And I'm sure yeah. the stories just go on and on, right? Oh, I love hearing yeah. the stories. I really do. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day in Finland. And uh, hopefully if you come over to the UK and you play Scotland, I'll, I'll try and try and get we down and be, see you. We'll be back there. I appreciate it. Nice talking to you, Paul. Take care of yourself. Lovely. God Take bless. care. Thanks so much. Okay. Cheers okay. now. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. What an interview. What a man. What a storyteller. It was a real privilege to speak with Corky, a man who seems on top of the world, happy as Larry, living the dream right now. As he said, he's over there with his girl in Finland, out in the country, living, loving life. He's got his band together, his new album's out there, he's about to hit the road. Just fantastic. I love this sort of stuff. Now, if you're listening in Scandinavia and he's rolling by you soon, then please go and show him your support. Turn out and see him at the gigs. And if not, then definitely get listening to his new album, The Finished Sessions, and check out the book, Letters to Sarah, as well. You can see more brilliant stories in there. We couldn't touch on everything on the podcast. So definitely check out his book for even more classic rock stories. Let's support him and show him our love. What a man he is. 
So that's it for me then, this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get all the episodes. Remember, they're released every single day. Loads of classic rock content on there for you. Vintage Rock Pod, I've interviewed more than 20 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. We're on episode 89 now. More big interviews to come. Fantastic ones to come in the next few weeks as well. So I'm just throwing that out there. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on the podcast app that you're listening to on this right now. And leave a five-star star review as well that would be a huge huge help look for vintage rock pod on youtube check out all the videos that i post on there you'll see some of corky's up there too and some bits that don't make the full interviews on the podcast plenty of stuff on there for you to enjoy fun bits there's a daily classic rock poll on there as well that gets thousands of votes on there every single day loads of great discussion but please just check out the youtube channel vintage rock pod as well Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow, of course, with another This Day Rocks, another big story from this day in the history of rock and roll. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.